The subject of this morning's sermon is forgiveness. It should fill us with brightness to consider that subject. The, the subject is forgiveness. The text is Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. You have that psalm in your bulletins. I ask you to either turn to it in your bulletins or to turn to the psalm in your Bibles. You probably would not remember, but almost exactly three years ago uh, today, we considered Psalm 130 together in these summer psalm series. Well, this is not the same sermon. That sermon was about the whole psalm. Today, I'd like us to focus just on those two verses, Psalm number 130, verses 3 and 4. There must be hundreds of verses in the Bible that refer to God's forgiveness. And many of them would present different themes that are connected to God's forgiveness or different nuances of the great subject of God's forgiveness. And if we were to think about the great subject as a whole, we'd have to go through all those passages and develop all those themes and all those nuances. But this morning, I'd like us look, to just look at this passage. It has its own nuances and its own theme. And you would know there's more to be said about the subject of forgiveness than is said here. But I'd like us this morning to consider what is said here. Remember that David begins this psalm by saying, Out of the depths I have cried to you. And he doesn't identify what those depths are. There was anguish in his soul. There was some kind of disappointment with God's providences. There was something, there was something that was causing him to be in a state of anguish, in a state of distress. And it's in that state that this psalm begins. And the first thing in this psalm that comes to his mind is what if God would make me accountable for my sins? Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but there is forgiveness with you. In this psalm, in this expression of David's experience, the first thing that comes to his mind is not that the Lord is my shepherd. It's not that God quickly forgives. The first thing that comes to his mind is this awareness of his own sins. Well, that's how, that's how our section begins. And so notice the, there's a simple uh, three-step movement to verses 3 and 4. The first is the prospect of God's judgment. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The second is the certainty of God's forgiveness, but there is forgiveness with you. And the third is God's purpose in forgiveness. God's intention, God's goal, God's purpose in forgiving sinners is that those sinners would be brought to a state of fearing the Lord. So those are, those are the headings for the text and for the sermon. The prospect of God's judgment, the certainty of God's forgiveness, and the purpose of God's forgiveness, which is to affect the fear of God in our hearts. So the prospect of God's judgment. If, O Lord, you should mark iniquities, who could stand? This word that is translated mark is... Not a subtle word, it's simply, Lord, if you, would, if you would take note, Lord, if you would pay attention, Lord, if you would ponder, Lord, if you, if you would observe, if you would record, if you would mark our iniquities, if you would. Now, how do you use if clauses 
if you would, David says. Sometimes we use an if clause to, absurd, to introduce something that's impossible, a condition that's impossible. And we use an if clause to introduce a condition that's impossible for some kind of effect. Like if, if you came and asked me, could, could I please borrow $1,000? I might say, well, if you could swim the Atlantic Ocean, I'll give you $1,000. Just be impossible. Be impossible for you to swim. Be impossible for me to give you $1,000. But that's not what the psalmist is doing here. The psalmist is introducing something that's very, very probable because the scriptures everywhere teach that God does, in fact, mark our sins. And God not only marks our sins, but He will actually bring us into an accounting for our sins. And if we're to appreciate the movement of David's soul in this passage, it's important that we appreciate what he would have known and what we should know about God's marking our sins. So let me just read to you some, just a few statements. I mean, there are, again, there are hundreds of statements. There must be hundreds of statements about God's forgiveness. There are multiple statements about this subject of God marking our sins and holding us accountable. So just listen to some of the words. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, you have this statement, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of all the thoughts. The Lord searches all hearts. The Lord understands all the intentions of our thoughts. Psalm 69 and verse 5, O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Proverbs 5:21 The ways of the Lord are I'm sorry the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders our paths it's not only that he sees them but he ponders them he thinks upon them Proverbs 15 and verse 3 the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good these are Old Testament statements. There's a more penetrating statement in the New Testament. In, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, you have this statement about God's knowledge, that God's knowledge is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he says, there is no creature, there's nothing that is hidden from him, but everything is open and naked before him to whom we will give an account we normally think of being naked as something that would be very embarrassing to stand in some public setting and to be seen without your clothes on. It's, it, it, we'd shrink back from that. It'd be very embarrassing. Well, this, is, this text that I just quoted is not in reference to physical embarrassment. It's moral embarrassment. There, there's this one before whom we have to do. It's, it's like everything morally is unclothed. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. Everything is open before him before whom we must give an account. But David is not making reference to just God knowing things. It's God holding us accountable for things. Listen to these texts. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes is one of the pieces of wisdom literature in the Bible. It's where the writer examines everything, everything about life. And he makes this statement at the conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whatever is good 
and whatever is evil. Some people tend to write that off as some Old Testament perspective. The Apostle Paul uses this text. The Apostle Paul uses this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. That's a statement to the believers in Corinth. Every one of them were going to, would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one would give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word men speak, they must give an account in the day of judgment. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Every bad word, but every idle word, we will give an account in the day of judgment. He also said in Luke 12, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the, inner in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and afterward have no more that they can do. But Jesus says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into, the, into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Now, these are only representative passages. The entire Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, makes us very clear that God does, in fact, mark sins. He does, and does in fact, bring us all into the judgment. And the, the Psalms expression is, who can stand? If you should do this, who could stand? You remember how Job said if he would not contend with God because he couldn't answer God one in a thousand accusations. He couldn't contend with God. Well, imagine, imagine, imagine what David is saying here, what the psalmist is saying. If you should mark iniquities, not because that's impossible, but because that's what you do. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could, who could stand erect in that? Who would not be crushed under the sense of guilt and the power of wrath? Who would, not, who would not be swept away? If you should do that, who could stand? Well, the next point that he goes to immediately is the certainty of God's forgiveness. And there's something deficient in our view of God and something deficient in our view of forgiveness if we don't see these two together. It's the God who does mark and who does draw us into account. It's that God with whom there actually is forgiveness. Now, the, in the English text, it starts with the word but. You know, but there is forgiveness with you. That's an excellent translation. It's hard to get into the translations, everything. That's an excellent translation. But there is forgiveness with you. The grammarians say that this is a demonstrative particle. It's the idea of yes, indeed, surely. Even so, surely, there is forgiveness with you. And in the same way that there are so many texts that speak about accountability, there are hundreds of texts that teach that God forgives and that God even delights to forgive. Listen to these texts. They're considerably brighter than the last group that I read from. 
Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Some of the translations just say, and, and you are forgiving. It's a little bit lame. You are good and ready to forgive, eager to forgive. And you are abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Nehemiah 9, 17, but you are God. This is the context of Israel's sins and bad sins, but God forgave them. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. It's because of his character. You are ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. Don't many of you know already this text in Micah, chapter 7, verse 18? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever. Why does he not retain his anger forever? Because he's not only just. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. Yes, he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Well, it's a wonderful announcement to make. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful confidence that we should have that but with God there is forgiveness. You children in Sunday school, I have probably learned some of the word pictures that the Bible gives about forgiveness. Well, I still go back to those child-appropriate word pictures, and I'm just going to remind you of some of them. These are Bible word pictures. I don't think the Bible, I don't think the Holy Spirit authored them only for children. I think the Holy Spirit authored them for all of us who have childlike need, who need some pictures to make the forgiveness of God vivid to us. Now, in these pictures, they're pictures. There's no attempt, all the different writers who gave these pictures, there's no attempt to make them all consistent. In fact, they kind of contradict each other a little bit, but each one of them conveys the idea that the forgiveness of God means that God doesn't hold our sins against us. Listen to the word pictures. Forgiveness means that our sins are blotted out. Here's a ledger that has all of our sins recorded, blotted out. Psalm 51 and verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Forgiveness is where our sins are not imputed. Psalm 32 and verse 1 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So here you have a picture where there's the record books and all all the records of all of our sins. Forgiveness is where they're blotted out. They can't be read anymore. Or here's a different picture. Here's all the records of our actual sins. God knows them. He doesn't impute them to us. He doesn't put them upon us in the judgment. Forgiveness, in the third place, means that God doesn't remember our sins. Now, God can't not remember. It's a word picture. But the text, Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, 
am he that blots out thy transgressions for my own sake and will remember them no more. Well, we're not to think of God having amnesia or something. God is very aware. But in terms of how he deals with those who are forgiven, they're out of his mind. He's not remembering them. He's not like many of us who remember and remember and remember the way we've been slighted or the way someone's sinned against us. When God forgives us, they're out of mind. Forgiveness means that God cleanses us from the moral impurity of our sins. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The moral stain and this sense of shame that comes along with our sins, it's not just that they're blotted out. It's, there's a cleansing of the conscience and a cleansing of the soul where there is forgiveness. The, you remember I said there are, there are lots of themes that are connected to the subject of forgiveness and not all the texts of the Bible introduce all of those themes. Well, there is a theme that this text does not take up that I'd like to bring to this text. And that's, that's the question, how can this be? How can God, who does know all of our sins, who has committed himself to judgment, who is righteous in all of his dealings with us, how can he just forgive? Can you imagine a judge who has a criminal brought to him Perhaps this person is somebody who has, who has actually committed several assaults, harmful, vicious, wicked assaults. You imagine his lawyer standing up and pleading, well, please be merciful. What would you think of the judge? Is it no problem? It's a good day for me. I'll just let it go. I'll just, I'll just cancel his debt. You would think that's a wicked judge. Of course you would think that's a wicked judge. So how can God do this? How can God extend himself to every kind of sinner and promise to forgive that person's sins? Well, that's not the theme of the text, but it doesn't seem right to talk about forgiveness without bringing that theme in. How can God do this? The psalmist lived in the Old Testament context. The psalmist lived in the context of the sacrificial system, which was all an immense series of pictures to teach us, to teach them and to teach everyone who would come afterwards, to teach us how sins can be forgiven. And the center of that system, of course, was sacrificing. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of animals, especially lambs, would have been sacrificed. That's, that would have been in the psalmist's mind. The picture would be that here somebody in Israel has sinned, they're aware of their sin, they take their lamb, they go to the priest, the priest and the man lay their, lay their hands on the head of the animal, confess sins symbolically. This animal symbolically now has the sinner's sins on him. His neck is cut. His body is burned. And it's a picture that that person who did the sin, that his sin is placed on the animal symbolically. The animal dies. It's a symbol of how someone has to die. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a penalty paid. And all of that was a picture. It was a picture. What does God do that he might forgive sins? He sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world. And when his son comes on the scene 
in the Gospel of John, one of the first things that John records when Jesus comes on the scene is that John the Baptist sees him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In John 3.16, you have this statement. This is for way beyond Sunday school, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his Son to be that sacrificial lamb that everyone who believes in him should not perish. They can stand through the judgment. They will not perish in the judgment. They will have everlasting life. Listen to the language of John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, hopefully there's no one so bold here that would actually say that, but I've never committed any sins. And John says that any, any person who says that, is just, he's just self-deceived. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can he do that? He says a few verses down, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. This son who was sent to be the sacrificial lamb, this sin who would bear the sins of his people and die in their place, he set forth in this text as a a propitiation for our sins. That is, he, the son of God, upon the cross in his death, he absorbs all the punishment, all the wrath, all the death that was to be ours. He received that. And the God who is justly angry with us is at peace toward us. He's propitiated because he has set forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You remember the text that was read earlier from Romans chapter 3 at the beginning, the call to worship. God has set forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins, that he might pour out his just anger upon his son so that he would be, so that God would be just and the justifier of the ungodly. He did that to demonstrate to everyone that I am concerned about my justice. I have publicly set forth my son to observe my, to observe, to to receive my wrath because I'm concerned that everyone knows about my justice, that it was just for me to forgive those old covenant sins. It's just for me to forgive people now because I have set forth my son to absorb my wrath and to be the propitiation for my sins. If if God should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Those who are forgiven can stand. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But, yes, surely there is forgiveness with God. You read in the Bible of all sorts of sinful people who have been forgiven. 
If all of our personal stories were broadcast on the screen, it would be evident that all manner of sinful people are sitting in this room who have been forgiven. There is uh, no limit to God's knowledge of our sins, and we're accountable for them all, but there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for every type of sinner, no matter how long or how many or how heinous or how shameful or how much you would never want anyone else to know about them. There is forgiveness with God for every sinner who wants the Lord Jesus. But come to the third place. Notice the purpose of God's forgiveness. Why does God do it? Why does God take sinful, bad people and forgive them? Why does he do it? Well, there is a much larger answer perhaps than what the psalmist gives us in this passage. But the psalmist does draw attention to one purpose, one of God's goals. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And fearing God is the effect of forgiveness. The presence of the fear of God is something of a proof of forgiveness. But let's stay on the first track. That is the goal of God in forgiveness. It's the purpose of God in forgiveness that we would fear him. There is forgiveness with you that, in order that, purpose clause. There is forgiveness with you in order that you may be feared. Now, do you know what the fear of God is? If you have been reading the Bible for a long period of time, you'll realize that the subject of the fear of God is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the term is a very uh, large and elastic term. There, there really are numbers of things that come together under this term, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. But the primary idea is that of reverence. The primary idea of somebody who fears the Lord is that they are caught up with a profound soul-deep reverence for God. And the fear of God, if you would try to collate some of these multiple passages in the Bible, the fear of God involves such qualities as I'm going to list. The fear of God involves an odd reverence for God's greatness, for God's vastness, for God's majesty, for God's power, for God's eternality, for God's character. The fear of God involves this, this, this awe that he is such a great being. The fear of God involves an affectionate reverence. The fear of God involves an affectionate reverence. The, the reverence of God because of his fatherly care for us. The fear of God involves a sober reverence, what we've seen here, sober awareness that my sins are real and that there's a real judgment and God is not to be trifled with. The fear of God involves a humble, grateful reverence and appreciation for what all that God has done for us. The fear of God involves obedience, it involves a submissive spirit where my love is returned to Him because He loves me and I love Him. There are all these things mixed together to form this disposition of the fear of God. And the passage says that forgiveness is to affect that disposition in our hearts. Now, how does that work? 
Some people seem to think that if, you know, if we sin and dear old God, he just forgives, that's what he does, that the dear old God, he'll forgive me, that idea, that that would lead to some kind of indifference. Somebody wrote that that idea is pure theorizing. That where somebody is really aware of their sins, and they are really forgiven, and they have an awareness of being forgiven, they are not indifferent to that God. They do fear Him. How does it work? Well, in general, I think this would be the answer. It'd probably be the same answer that you would give. In forgiveness, what happens? God melts our hearts. In forgiveness, God melts our hearts. He removes the hardness and the despair and the bitterness that would keep some people from reverencing Him. Why don't some people reverence God? Bitterness, despair, hardness. Forgiveness melts those things away. In forgiveness, God removes every obstacle to His reverence and he brings to us in forgiveness, he brings to us everything that is necessary for this disposition. God's law does not lead to this kind of fear. The threat of deserved punishment does not lead to this kind of fear. The overwhelming grip of our guilt or the convulsions of shame do not lead to this kind of fear. It is only the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God that so softens our heart that we who would otherwise be hard are enabled to fear Him. I'd like to read a quote from Spurgeon and then one from John Gill. These are old Baptist writers. Spurgeon said, gratitude for pardon, gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. If all were under apprehension of His deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing Him. Isn't that true? If you were, if you were just possessed with this reality that your sins are so many and God is certainly going to give you and there's no hope for you, what would that, what would that create in you? Despair or hardness or bitterness. But Spurgeon's point is it would be, if we were under this apprehension of deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing Him. It is grace which leads the way to this holy, holy reverence and fear for God. Listen to this statement by John Gill. Was there no forgiveness of sin, if you can imagine? Was there no forgiveness of sin? There would be no more fear of God among men than there is among the devils. If there was no forgiveness of sin, there would be no more fear of God among men than there is among devils for, th for whom there is no forgiveness. There might be dread and trembling among them, but no godly fear. Forgiveness melts the heart. The devils, the demons, know so much about God. They hate Him. They are bitter toward Him. They know He will overpower them. They do not fear God in the way that we have been discussing. Human beings, if they do not know forgiveness, they don't have this reverence for God. But in the context of actually being forgiven 
and being aware of that forgiveness, there is a melting of the soul that removes all the obstacles to this kind of reverence and actually in place implants that kind of disposition in our hearts. God has created the closest connection between the prospect of judgment, the reality of forgiveness, and the experience of rever reverential fear. God has created a connection between those three things, a connection between a sense of the prospect of judgment, the reality of forgiveness, and the experience of reverential fear. One of God's chief purposes in forgiveness is to create a tenderness in our hearts so that we would fear Him. Those of you who take notes, you might make a note of three passages that I thought we might turn to, but perhaps we will not because of time. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through chapter 7, verse 1. That's where, that's where Paul is writing warnings to the Corinthian church, and he's trying to bring them to repentance, and he reminds them of promises of mercy. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Dearly beloved, having these promises, having these promises of mercy, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness and perfect holiness in the fear of God. This awareness of fault and wrong, contrasted with God's willingness to forgive, is to stir a godly zeal, a godly fear in our hearts with which we pursue holiness. This, the same is true in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. That passage which Pastor Alex has preached on now some months ago is very similar in its ethos to Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you call upon God as Father, who without respect of persons, who absolutely impartially judges everyone, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, knowing, knowing that you were redeemed not by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think of God as Father, you're supposed to think of Him as somebody who judges impartially, and that should make you have a, this, this kind of fear that we've been talking about, knowing, knowing, knowing that you have been completely forgiven, that you have been completely redeemed by the blood of the Son of God Himself. The same idea is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, which I'll just, I'll just leave to you. In that passage, the writer compares us New Covenant believers with the Old. He said, we, you, you ha we haven't come to Mount Sinai. We haven't come to all the Old Testament stuff. He says, we have come to the, to the, to the Mount Zion, to the heavenly city, to the, to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to all these New Covenant privileges. And then he ends this statement by a call to take soberly the Word of God and that we might have grace to serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear because this forgiving, gracious, new covenant God, he says, is a consuming fire. Well, put that all together. There is a dynamic that comes when these are together. When we have an awareness of sin and judgment and culpability, and we have an awareness of forgiveness where all that sin that would cause us to be crushed in the judgment will enable us to 
survive that judgment, be forgiven in that judgment, pass into everlasting life through that judgment. Those two things work together to affect this fear of God in our hearts. Isaiah says that the, the fear of God is our treasure. The most important parts, the most experimental parts of Christianity are connected to fearing God. Peace, joy, stability, usefulness, freedom from sin. The most important aspects of experimental Christian living are related to the fear of God. And the fear of God is produced by that combination of awareness of sin and awareness of forgiveness. Well, some people need to nurture an awareness of their sins. Most of God's people don't need to nurture an awareness of their sins. They need to nurture this reality that God forgives them, that there is forgiveness with Him. There is forgiveness with Him so that we can be reconciled to Him. There's forgiveness with Him so that we can properly think of Him. There's forgiveness with God so that we're not hard or cold or indifferent to Him. So what does that mean? If so much of our experimental Christian life is connected to fearing Him, and if that is the product of an awareness of forgiveness, well, the effect that I'm trying to point out is that means we should study forgiveness. We should study its cause. We should study its absoluteness. We should study its freeness. We should study that in contrast to the shameful things that we have thought and said and done because there is forgiveness. We need to study those things and we need to ask God that in the context of that thinking and study that he would effect this dynamic within us, that we would know more and more of what it is to revere God and to fear him as the scriptures call us to fear. Let me close by asking the obvious question. Would you say that your life is characterized by the fear of the Lord? Have you experienced something of this dynamic? That you're aware of your sin? You realize that if you were called to give an account, there's no way that you could stand through the avalanche of accusations that your record would bring to you? Has that, is that your experience? You know that. And you know that in contrast to that, there is forgiveness with God, and that so gripped you that you have reverence for Him? Is that your experience? Well, if it is not your experience, let me encourage you to ask, why is that? Do you think, are you careless? Never think about sin, never think about God. In that condition, there is no hope for you because the Lord called, came to call sinners. He didn't call for people that, He didn't come for people that think they're fine. Or have you never experienced this dynamic because you think God is, He's unwilling to forgive me. He won't forgive me. My sins are too many and too long and too repeated and too heinous and too shameful. He won't forgive me. 
Well, I'm happy to say to you, he will. He will forgive you. A very fallible man who reads the Bible can stand up and say, I can guarantee you that if you want the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want the love of God that is in him, if you want the forgiveness of sins that is in him, you just come to him. And he promises that he will not cast you out, that he'll receive you. Or it may be that there are some people here who, who really are Christians and really have experienced this dynamic. But the truth is, there's a dullness that just pervades. And the wonder of being forgiven is seldom felt. Well then, pray and think about forgiveness. And think about the go-to passages that many of you would already know. And ask for God to make that vivid to you. That you would know that there is forgiveness with him. The effect is that he may be feared. The effect is that you may serve him with this fear of him, this reverence for him in your hearts. Well, may God make Psalm 130 one of those go-to passages in your lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we can only thank you that it has pleased you to reveal yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in awe of your character to know that you are absolutely just, that you completely understand sin, to know that you are offended by it, but to know that there is forgiveness with you is awing to us, is stunning to us. You are so wonderfully different than we are in terms of your gracious character. Many of us have come already to your son to find refuge in him, to find forgiveness in him. And for them, for those of us in that condition here, we pray that you would elevate our awareness of forgiveness and that you would work this dynamic of fearing you more and more into our hearts. And for those people who do not fear you, are indifferent to you, or hard toward you, or bitter toward you. We pray that you would bring your love to bear upon them in such a way that they want your son, and in such a way that they turn to him, and that you melt their hearts with your forgiveness. We commend them and ourselves to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>